Good morning, church. My name is Marshall Pennell. I serve on the elder team here at Vero Bible Fellowship, and it's my privilege to do so. A few weeks ago, Pastor Greg asked me if I would uh, stand in this morning and, and bring a message for Father's Day, and I'm delighted to do that. I uh, just want to say that uh, if you notice some, something going on in the back, uh, Dan Corgan's father fell, and he's, uh, I think, okay, but they're taking care of him. Uh, so that's just to let you know what's going on back there and pray for uh, Mr. Corrigan as they take care of him this morning. It's good to see you all. Father's Day is an interesting day, isn't it? Uh, it's been established uh, not nearly as long as Mother's Day. In fact, I was reading that Mother's Day was established 60 years before they got around to doing something for the dads. <laughs> on Mother's Day, they, they started calling it, I guess, uh, like Childbearers Day or something. And so the, I guess this is Lawnmowers Day. So enjoy that. I'm not sure how I feel about it, to tell you the truth. I've been a dad for... Uh, Man, a long time. I think my eldest daughter turned 38 just a few days ago. So uh, that's, that's been a blessing. I have three daughters, and they're wonderful, and I love them so much. And they've been such a huge part of, of uh, the blessings of my life. But sometimes Father's Day has been less than splendid. And uh, it, it has a lot of different uh, emotions that it brings for different people. And I think this morning I just wanted to acknowledge that. You know, we celebrate fathers, and yet sometimes it just doesn't feel much like celebrating. There were years in my life. Well, at first, it start, Father's Day started going sour for me, I think, when I was a young dad. And I had three daughters. And the church I was in at that time thought it was so cool to always have a father-son banquet on Father's Day. And I'm like, and, you know, I'm a father with three daughters. I don't have a son. They're like, well, you are a son. You can still come. And the point wasn't going to the banquet and eating their food. It was to celebrate with my children, which I was not allowed to do. On the father-son banquet, or the father-son camp out, or the father-son fishing trip, or all those things. Yeah, I don't know why churches sometimes do crazy stuff like that. But, uh, but then there was also a period of time in my life when uh, one of my children kind of separated herself and her family from the rest of our family for a number of years. And Father's Day was tough during those years. And many of you here have experienced that and maybe are experiencing something like that right now. Some of you are here today filled with joy and celebration at Father's Day, and I celebrate with you. And some of you are here hurting today because of situations in your life, maybe something you have done or something someone else has done that affects your relationship with your father or your children and some of you today are mourning the loss of a father or a son and are filled with grief. So I just want to acknowledge all those things today. And because of that, um, say that the position of father is something that God the Father established and it's to be honored. It's an honorable position. I'm grateful to be a father. I'm grateful to have a great father. But let's focus our attention today instead on the father, the father's love for us. As I thought about that uh, over the last couple of weeks, I thought about a, uh, a piece of scripture that would sort of uh, help to lead the way into this. And I asked for this uh, Psalm 139 to be read this morning because it's one of the passages that to me really portrays the Father's love for us. I especially love that portion where it says, you hem me in from behind and before. You just get that in, in your mind as a picture. I, I almost picture security guards with a VIP. You know, one behind, one in front, one beside with his hand on the shoulder, like we're taking care of this person. Nothing's going to get to him. 
we're going to guard them and protect them and get them to where they need to go. That's sort of the image I have when I think of those pictures of God's care of me. Him me in before and behind with his hand on me. I mean, he is taking care of me. And that's one of the ways that I see God expressing his love for me as his child. But I wanted to look for a portion of scripture that we would be able to dive into a little bit to explore the concept of the love of the Father. And so I'd like to ask you to turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find the story of King David, who at this point was, a, was fairly new as a king, and a guy named Mephibosheth. Let me give you a little bit of background on that as you're uh, looking up that passage. David was close friends with King Saul's son, whose name was Jonathan. And this was during the years, if you remember, in fact, Pastor Greg talked a little bit about this last week in his message, talked about how uh, David was, was being hunted by Saul and cut off the corner of his robe and then felt terrible that he had done this to God's anointed. There was this relationship between King Saul and David as a young man. And Saul was jealous of David because God had made it clear that David was going to be the next king. But David had this close friendship with Jonathan. There were even times when Jonathan helped to save David's life when Saul was coming after him. They were that close. They had a covenant together to remain friends. And uh, so we don't know exactly what the details of the covenant were, but there was this close relationship between Saul and David. Now, Jonathan was next in line to the throne, but he seemingly understood that David was God's anointed to be the next in line to the throne. And that didn't seem to bother Jonathan, who should have rightfully, according to the human chain of command, would have been the next king. So they had this great relationship, and then there came the day when Jonathan and his brothers were killed in battle. And then King Saul, that same day, wasn't killed in battle, but killed himself by falling on his own sword. So in one day, the king and his three sons were lost. In response to this, the, uh, the next in line to the throne, this young man named Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan, David's friend. Remember how that old relationship works? You got Saul and his son Jonathan, and then you got David, and then Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. He would have been the next in line to the throne now that Saul and the three sons were gone. Are you with me? Okay. I know it can get kind of complicated. We should have like a flow chart or something up here on the screen. But you understand what's going on. So what happened is uh, Mephibosheth's maid, realizing that his life was probably in danger because the king and the three sons were now killed. And now this guy, you know how it works with kings. If you're coming after the kingdom, you want to kill everybody who's in line for the throne. So the maid took Mephibosheth and fled away to keep him in hiding and keep him safe. When they're fleeing, Mephibosheth fell. We don't know any details about this, but he fell and his, both of his feet were crippled for life because of him falling. Okay, so that's the background on Mephibosheth. Now let's look at chapter 9 of 2 Samuel and see what the rest of the story is. David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there, still not, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, 
at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to him, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's pause there for a second. Just make sure we're, we're all together on what's going on here. So you see, David brought this guy in, Ziba, the servant of King Saul. Asked him the question. He told him about Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth now is brought before him, crippled in his feet. You got to remember, back in this day, the society, the culture had no regard and no value for somebody who was disabled. A man who was crippled and couldn't work, couldn't provide for his family, couldn't do anything, couldn't add any value to society, was basically an outcast and had to be just cared for by somebody. So for this guy to be brought before the king was strange. Somebody who had no honor and no respect in, in society. So he was brought before the king, and of course he had to be a little bit afraid also because it wouldn't have been really out of bounds or, or, or even particularly wrong for David to have Mephibosheth imprisoned or, or even killed because he would have been next in line to the throne, and that sort of thing happened. And so Mephibosheth was rightfully afraid, and King David told him, first thing, don't be afraid. I'm here to honor you. Okay, so, and then he, Mephibosheth uses this language about himself calling himself a dead dog because he understood what his position was in society and who he was in relation to the king. Let's go on. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to his house I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord my king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He ate at the king's, he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I think it's just interesting the way they keep saying that. At the very end of the story, now he was lame in both of his feet. Let's not forget that. This guy was useless as a cripple. And all this stuff happened to him. So you get the story. You see what's happening here. I wanted to use this story today because it kind of helps to portray some things about the love of the father as God's love was shown by David to this guy who referred to himself as a dead dog, had no rights and possibly could have been a target of being imprisoned or murdered, but instead was restored all of the land of King Saul, which Saul was a king for a very long time, and his lands would have been significant. And not just all the land, because what's a crippled guy going to do with all this land? Gave him the servant who had 15 sons and 20 servants of his own, whose job was to farm the land, bring in the crops, sell the crops, bring the money to Mephibosheth, who probably didn't even need any of that, because now he basically lived in the palace and ate at the king's table as an honored part of the king's family. Mephibosheth was set up pretty well. And that was because David wanted to show special love 
to the son of his friend Jonathan. It was because Mephibosheth was Jonathan's image bearer. I think there's a parallel there as we talk about the father's love for us because the father has this love for us because of this very reason. We are his image bearers. We are created in God's image. And so he, the father God has this affection and love to pour out on us simply because of that. He created us in a special place. It makes sense that God would love his creation. I remember when I was uh, probably third grade, living down in Quito, Ecuador, a student at the Alliance Academy. My parents were missionaries down there. And we had this, they call it spiritual emphasis week at our school. And during spiritual emphasis week, they brought in this special speaker. And I was third grade, so it was like a children's speaker. And I, I remember this. I don't know why. You, you remember these random things from your childhood? This guy told this story that day of somebody, a, a kid, who had made a boat. And he'd painted the boat. And he took it out to the lake and sailed it. And the boat was lost on the lake. He did, it got, it like drifted away, and he didn't get it back. And he hated the fact that he had lost this boat that he had made. Well, then he was in a shop downtown sometime later and saw his boat there for sale. Somebody had evidently found it, taken it to the shop, and put it up for sale. And so he saved his money, and he bought the boat, and he took it back home and had the boat back because it was his boat that he made, and so he bought it with this price. You see where this children's speaker was going with this, right? A parallel the story of God creating us and then redeeming us, purchasing us back through the blood of Christ. Well, it's, you know, it's an okay story, and I remember it after about 100 years, but it's not really on target because it talks about just God, this kid loving his creation, and I don't believe that God has that kind of love for his general creation. I think there's a lot of confusion out there about this. I don't think God has this great love for just the world, for nature. God created this place for his image bearers to dwell in. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of creation. We are to be stewards of all that's around us. I was raised as a hunter and a fisherman, an outdoorsman. I I love the woods. and It grieves me when I'm on the beach and I see trash there and people not taking care of the earth. But that's not because we're to love the earth so much. That's just because we're stewards of it. And God didn't create all of this because he loves it so much. And this is maybe bad news to some of you. God doesn't love the ocean the way we think he might. He doesn't even love your, your cat or your dog, you know, the way he loves you. I'm sorry to hit you hard in a tender spot like that because some people seem to believe that their pets are almost human. But to God, they're not. And here's why. I mean, they're his creation they delight him. God created those things, and the account in Genesis tells us that every, at every phase of creation, what did God say? That is good. God was pleased with his creation. About a year ago, I was working on, uh, on helping with uh, evaluating a script and, and rewriting a script for a, a Broadway production of John Milton's classic piece of literature, Paradise Lost. So uh, this, some of you, if you're old enough, you may have had to study this in school. It's a poem written in ancient English that's as big as a thick book. And it's basically the story of Adam and Eve, the, the, the fall of Satan, and then the fall of, of man, and, uh, and Adam and Eve in the garden, and the response to that. A fabulous, fabulous story that I had the opportunity to study. And so a year ago from right now, I was helping with this script for a Broadway production, 
I'll tell you how many people have seen that production in the last year on Broadway. Slightly fewer than were in my car with me when I was alone the other day. <laughs> but I love that piece uh, that Milton wrote. And in it, he has such, such insight to what it must have been like when, when Satan and his armies, who had been cast out of heaven after this battle with God, into the lake of fire, started to observe as God was making this new creation, which was the earth. And it was beautiful, and they were fascinated, wondering what God was up to. And then they were filled with anger and rage when they realized that God wasn't making this world, this creation, as his masterpiece, but it was just a place to house his masterpiece, which was a creature that was made in his own image, that he made to pour out his love on. And so Satan and his army started to devise ways. They knew they couldn't attack God directly. They'd already tried that in the rebellion in heaven. And now they came up with this brilliant plan. If we can't get to God directly, we can attack this image bearer who he loves. And ever since that time, I think that's exactly what's been going on. Satan attacking the image bearers of God through all kinds of strife and war and abortion and all kinds of ways that he has come up with to destroy the image bearers of God because God has this unique and amazing love for us just because we're created in his image. The most glorious sunset doesn't bear the image of God. The most beautiful view that you would see in nature doesn't bear the image of God or carry the Holy Spirit. The relationship between David and Jonathan gave special meaning to Mephibosheth in David's eyes because he bore the image of his dear friend. And the relationship that we can have with God is based on that fact that God created us to be his image bearers. But there, there was this problem or barrier between Mephibosheth and David the fact that Mephibosheth was actually rightfully, according to culture and society, next in line to the throne, and it would have been somewhat normal or even acceptable for David to eliminate that threat. And there's this parallel with us when we talk about God's love for us as his image bearers, because there's a barrier between us, natural man, and God, the fact that we are people who are affected by sin. It's a serious problem, too. In fact, I'd like you to uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul made it very, very clear how serious this problem is between natural man and God, talking about before coming to faith in Christ, before coming to God for forgiveness that was purchased on the cross by Christ, before that, the situation that we, natural man, God's image bearers, were in. He says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You get what he's saying there? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature with a continual lust for more and by our very nature objects of God's wrath. Let that settle for a minute. By our very nature we were objects of God's wrath. Something 
that God's wrath was focused on. But then he goes on. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what an amazing story. David went above and beyond to show his love to this crippled man, Mephibosheth, just because of his heritage, his relationship as the son of David's close friend, Jonathan. And God has gone to this great length to sacrifice his own son to bring us into relationship with him because of his love for us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It probably brings to mind another Bible verse that we all memorized when we were kids. John 3, 16, I'll always only know it in the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the story. That's what God did because of his love. For God so loved the world, remember not the sunset and the creation and the ocean and the dogs and the kitties, but the humans, the people who were made in his image, his love for those human beings was so intense that he went to this great length to overcome the barrier that was between us and him. And his motive for that was his incredible love, the love of the Father. C.S. Lewis had some things to say about uh, God's, the way that God pursues us through his love or as a motive of his love. C.S. Lewis, of course, is the guy who wrote the, the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that many are familiar with. But he also wrote some incredibly deep, not just philosophical, but theological pieces. Many people are familiar with Mere Christianity. One of my favorites is a, actually uh, not so much a sermon as a... a, 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 a the word escapes me, and I'm sorry, but it's a piece that he presented uh, like a sermon or a lecture called The Weight of Glory that's just full of, of rich theology and rich teaching. But before he got to that place, he was a young man who was a professor at Oxford, at Magdalen College, a part of Oxford, who was an atheist. And he had been raised in the church and decided there is no God, decided to live his life as an atheist, and he was absolutely committed to making sure that he would never believe in God. And so God started to pursue him, and there's some great stories about how God uh, led him to different people and got him thinking about different things that eroded his, uh, his, his resistance to the love of God. And he talks about that. And as he's talking about that, he's, uh, he's talking about how uh, absurd it is to think that natural man in our fallen state would pursue God. People talk about searching for God. Lewis says about his own experience and telling us that the experience of most people who are not in a relationship with God would be the same. His experience was, he said, uh, let's see, how did he put this? Man's search for God would be as absurd as the mouse's search for a cat. Because natural man has this desire, a natural desire to be independent, to be out from under the authority of God, to be our own captain of our own soul or our own moral free agent, to decide right and wrong for ourselves. And that's probably why some people bring themselves to the point of 
expressing a lack of belief in God or more accurately a belief that there is no God because if I admit that there's a God then I have to also admit that there are rules and authority over me. And that was Lewis's thing. He did not want to do that. But God kept pursuing him with his love. At the end of that time, a period of years, when he finally came to express faith and belief in God and faith in Jesus Christ, he talked about it like this. He talked about how he had hated the idea of a loving God. And yet, even though he hated the idea of this God who loved him, God continued to love him and draw him with his love. If there is somebody who would be undeserving of love, wouldn't it be the person who hates the person who is loving, who just rejects and hates that person? At some point, that love would traditionally stop because it's no longer welcomed or deserved. Maybe you've been in that position on one side or the other at some point in your life. C.S. Lewis was talking about being in that position before God and how God kept pursuing him with his love. And he came to this conclusion about God's kindness and love. He said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. His compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion, what he means by that is God's love compelling us drawing us irresistibly to come to him. His compulsion is actually our liberation. He captures us with his love because his kindness is, sorry, his hardness is softer than the kindness of man. Anyhow, our comprehension of how we're undeserving of God's love and how we've rebelled against God's love and resisted God's love actually should have the effect of intensifying our understanding of God's love once we come to terms with it. Think of uh, Mephibosheth. When he was there before David, bowed down, referring to himself as a dead dog, knowing that David had the, possibly even the right to have him imprisoned or killed. And instead, when David poured out this incredible gesture of love and grace, restoring to him all the lands of his grandfather who was king, giving him his king's servant with his 15 sons and their 20 servants to farm the land and bring the money and do all these things. And by the way, you will always eat at my table. Probably pretty good food at the king's table. When Mephibosheth saw that David wasn't going to kill him or punish him or reject him some way, but he was instead pouring out this incredible grace and goodness on him. Can you imagine how overwhelmed he was in response to that? In a parallel way, when we come to terms with the fact that we were, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were constantly trying to fulfill our own wicked desires with a, con a constant thirst for more, and we were by our very nature objects of God's wrath. When we come to terms with that, the position that we were in, in our natural state, and then realize that God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, sent his own son to die on the cross to redeem us so that he could have relationship with us, and that was his motive. When we get all of that, we should rightfully be overwhelmed understanding the incredible love of the Father. I love those, those songs, Brenton, that you chose this morning. Thank you for putting the time and the effort into to finding songs that express to us and help us to contemplate on the incredible love of the Father. When we get our own fallenness and brokenness and weakness, then we'll be overwhelmed at the goodness of God. 
Martin Luther, who is so well known for his teachings on grace and the doctrines of justification, struggled his whole life with this. He always saw himself as this wicked sinner before God and eventually was able to come to terms with the grace of God and the justification that we have through Jesus Christ. And that's when his love for God exploded all the more. And he wrote these great hymns. But some of those hymns, like one of the ones that we sing a lot, says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It hurt him that even as a person who was saved came into relationship with God, understood the sacrifice of Christ and understood the love of God, still was prone to wander, prone to leave the God he loved because he still struggled with this. He knew his own heart. He knew his own weaknesses and his own faults. Martin Luther, I, was, I had the opportunity to be in Germany one time in, uh, in this castle where Martin Luther was holed up hiding from the Pope and the bishops who were hunting him down to try and kill him. And he was there working on translating the word of God into German. And I remember being in these rooms. It was in December and it was cold. And I thought, man, this was not, you think of being in a castle and it sounds nice. It's not nice. It was miserable. And he was in there hiding because he was being pursued to be killed. This same guy, in reference to that kind of experience, in reference to being hunted down by the Pope and all of his bishops with hopes of putting him to the blade, said this, I fear my own heart more than the Pope and all of his bishops. I do too. I fear my own heart. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And you know what? You are too. You are. You, maybe you've been the holiest Christian in this room for, for the last 50 years. You still suffer from the same disease. Prone to wander. Remember a great preacher one time talking about it like this. Like we have a hole in our heart. And the grace and the goodness and the comprehension of God's love for us sort of drips out a little at a time and has to keep being renewed and filled up. And that's why we're here. That's why the Bible tells us don't forsake the gathering together of believers. We need to spend time in the Word of God because we are still these fallen people in a fallen world prone to wander with a hole in our heart who should fear our own hearts more than we would fear if the FBI was coming after us with a, an arrest warrant and, and the right to execute us. We should be more afraid of ourselves than that. The truth of the Father's love, though, is often misunderstood. And I'd like to kind of wrap it up with this this morning. There are three, three ways that I thought of that, uh, that are common misunderstandings of God's love. One of them is some people think of God and his love like a kindly old grandfather sitting there watching the grandkids play. When they're being naughty, he kind of gives them a wink and a smile, and he's like, you kids are all right. I won't tell your mom. <laughs> that God is just this loving, gracious, you know, he's just so kind and so good, which he is but so kind and so good that he's willing to just overlook things and all of you are okay and I, everyone on earth are my children and I know they all make different choices and do different things, but that's okay because, you know, I'm good. 
And that's a misunderstanding of God's love because the Bible teaches us while those things are true to an extent, that it's not true that God's love is just equally experienced by everyone regardless of salvation. God's love is poured out on those who have come to him through Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and redemption. And God loves those people who haven't, but the love is not experienced the same way. Those people who have refused to humble themselves and put them in a position of yielding to God will never experience the love of God the way he intended it to be experienced. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death. The payment that we get for sin, not just physical death, we'll all die someday, but spiritual death, which is eternal death, eternal separation from God, the wages, the payment for sin is being separated from God for eternity, spiritual death. That's what the Bible has to say about the idea of God just loves everyone the same and we're all okay before God. So let's not make that mistake. Some people think that the Father's love is the opposite. It's so harsh and condemning. There are people who you've probably dealt with. Maybe you've been one of them. I think I struggled with this at some points in my life. People who feel like when there's someone who is blatantly sinning, we need to harshly cut them off, shun them. Make sure that they don't get any hint of God's love through me because what they need is a harsh rebuke. And there may be times and places where some of that is necessary or right, but man, we should be careful with it because what did Jesus do? Jesus was questioned about why he would go into the homes of sinners and Pharisees and eat with them. And what did he say in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17? He said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus spent time with sinners, and he wasn't always rebuking them harshly, although he did some of that. And we've had sermons in the last couple of weeks of Jesus doing that specifically to those religious leaders who were false teachers. But we should be very careful about passing out harshness and rebuke to people just because they don't live according to biblical standards. Sometimes Christians make this mistake. We feel like if we had the right laws or the right political pressure or the right social pressure, we could force people who don't believe in God to act like they do. You know, the Bible calls them pagans. That seems like a, a slur or a bad, bad thing to call somebody, but it's, it's not intended that way. It's just someone who doesn't believe in God and doesn't follow his word. We tend to want to legislate to make pagans act like Christians. And that's not God's plan at all. God's plan is for us to go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to obey the things he commanded us. And we do that by expressing and showing the love of God as we preach the gospel and as we, like God does, draw people to himself through his love. So some people feel like God is the accepting grandfather. Some people feel like God's love should be harsh. But most of us struggle with this one. Most of us struggle with feeling that God's continuing love for us is pretty much dependent on our own performance for God. I have a friend who calls it the hamster wheel 
of works Christianity. If we do enough good, now we know we're not earning our salvation. Salvation is by grace. We've come to terms with that. But now that we're saved, we have to constantly perform just right for God. And if we don't, then maybe he won't be happy enough with us. And if we do, then he's going to be extra happy with us. And maybe he'll really love us if we really do good and go to church every week and read our Bibles the way we should and do all the things that we know we should do and stay away from the things that we know we shouldn't do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that none of that matters. What I'm saying is that does not influence God's love for you. God's love for you is consistent and strong because you're his image bearer who's come to him in faith through Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness. And now you're established in this relationship. If you have done that, you're established in this relationship with God that will never change. His love for you will never stop. It will never grow weaker. He'll never get dissatisfied with you and say, why is he always doing that? I'm sick of that guy. I'm done with him. We do that because we're weak and fallen and human and prone to wander and have a hole in our hearts that lets the grace and the love drip out. But man, God doesn't suffer from those problems. And so this is what we end up doing. We end up convincing ourselves that we're on this hamster wheel of performance Christianity and we better keep the wheel going or else things aren't going to go just right and we get exhausted. Psalm 86, verse 15 written by a psalmist who was a follower of God. He said, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God that we serve. <clears throat> I have a good friend in uh, upstate New York. His name is Mike Nye. He's a pastor in a teacher of other pastors through a ministry in upstate New York, known him for many, many years. I've mentioned Mike probably before because he, he, he's unique in this way. Every morning at six o'clock sharp, my phone makes a little ding and it's a Facebook messenger message from Mike Nye with a written out prayer that he's praying for me that day. Every day, this guy in New York who I've known for 30 years prays for me and doesn't just like pray for me and like, oh, I'm praying for you. He writes it out and it's a meaningful prayer about me and my wife, Jessica, every single day. I have a lot of respect for this guy, Mike. And so the other day I, I answered his message and I said, hey, Mike, thanks for your prayer. By the way, do you have any thoughts on the love of the Father? That's all I said. Didn't ask him for much. He wrote back within minutes and he said this. First he said, uh, his fir first thing was quoting that great hymn, The Love of God. You know that song? Is it going through your mind yet? The Love of God, so rich and pure, so marvelous in song. It will forevermore endure the saints and angels song. That's weird, huh? The preacher starts singing in the middle of the sermon. Here's what he, he, so Mike quoted that, and then he went on to say, I find that people tend to resist or flee the love of the Father. And he's talking about God's people. I find that people tend to resist or flee the love of the Father. They don't embrace it, and they find it hard to enjoy it because they're still plagued with guilt. But God and his love has purchased freedom for his people. Think about that for a minute, and I think that's true. 
I think it's true of me, and I think it's probably true of most of you. And if there's some weird person who is not true of congratulations, you should teach us next week. We're aware of our own shortcomings and wrongdoings. Too many times the things that are so far in our past that they're before we came to faith in Christ, because sometimes we still deal with the damage in our families and our homes and our lives and our businesses that were caused by what we were like before we came to Christ for salvation. Or when we went through a difficult time in our life, or it might be just us on our best day messing stuff up because we're people. And we're so aware of that that we can't reconcile the fact that this perfect, holy God who demands justice loves me completely and perfectly right now in the middle of all this. And that guilt causes me to flee from the love of God, to not embrace it, to not run towards it and dive into it. Well, if you haven't come to God acknowledging your sin and a desire to turn from your sin and turn to him for salvation, then you can't fully understand or experience the love of God the way that the Bible talks about it and the way that I'm presenting it to you today. And if you would like to remedy that situation, at the close of our service, we'll have a couple of our elders over here on this side. There'll be people all across the front to come and pray with. But if you would like to talk to one of our elders specifically to have them show you from God's word how you can come to Christ for salvation. They'll be standing right over here at the close of our service. Now, I would encourage you to do that today so you can experience the love of God and all of its purity and richness like it is not possible to do until you've made that step. For the rest of you today, if you're a child of God who's come to him in faith, I want to challenge you, invite you to don't just think about the love of God, don't just acknowledge it, but ask him today to increase your understanding of his great love for you. Because I'm sure that you and I don't really get it. There's more depths of the love of God than what we can comprehend, and he has to continually open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ability to run towards it and dive into it and experience it and enjoy it. Ask God today to help you to do that, to run to it, to embrace it, and to enjoy it. Father's Day is a wonderful time for you and your family. I rejoice with you. That's great. I've had some wonderful Father's Days in my years. If it's a day that brings sorrow and difficulty, or if you're sitting there today and you're just like, I don't get it, that's fine. Be encouraged. Because today our focus isn't really on earthly fathers, it's on our Father and His tremendous love for us. The Father who made you in His image as an object for Him to lavish His love on. You hem me in ahead and behind. You keep your hand on me as I'm going through whatever it is that I'm going through, whatever I'm experiencing, good or bad, that gracious God of intense, amazing love is with his people today. 
stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, you made us to bear your image and you pour out your love upon us even to the extent of providing a way for us to have a right relationship with you when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the blood of the Savior. Thank you for the fact that today we can know intellectually that there are depths of your love that we can't yet figure out. Father, continually show your people, these people in this room who are your followers. Father, show us more and more each day insights into your consistent, wonderful love, your mercies that are new every morning. Father, we ask that you would use us in increasing measure as instruments of your love, to show your love and your grace to one another as the family of believers, the body of Christ, and to show your love to those around us in our community, many of whom are terrified of the concept of a holy God. Father, use us to show your love to them and may that open and soften hearts and bring them to the point of yielding to you and coming to you for forgiveness. Thank you, God, that you hem me in before and behind and keep your hand upon me. Let those thoughts encourage our hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come up and, and pray with one of our prayer partners, feel free to do so, or if you'd like to pray with one of our elders. But before you leave, hold on, I'm not done yet. There's one more thing that I would like to do, and that is just to express this benediction from the Word of God on you, His people. And now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. God bless you, my friends. Amen.